Welcome to our second episode on making the most of super. Before we begin, a short disclaimer that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. So, Shani, we've had a little bit of controversy with one of our podcasts. Mm. So, maybe three or four ago, I mentioned, and I was I was just thinking of this because I'm doing the same thing tonight. I have a webinar this yeah. evening. I mentioned on the podcast that you got me a bottle of wine for the webinar. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So my mother sent me an email, and she told me that you were going to report me. Mm. And not to send me on errands. Yeah, to report me, <laughs> that you were going to report me to my boss, and I was going to get fired. Mm. So I, I I don't understand this. Like, I, I mean, this is already in train. Me getting I've fired. Spoke, yeah. <laughs> okay. It, just, it seems weird. Like, you know, you were coming. You live, like two minutes from the office yeah you also live across the street from a bottle shop yes and I, that's half the reason why i chose the apartment exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> but i paid you for it and just asked you if you could grab it on the way down but my mother thinks i'm gonna get fired we'll see what happens yeah and the other thing is you know we were hanging out together on saturday and after you drank a fair amount of champagne you decide you're going to call my mother <laughs> And I kept pointing out that it's four in the morning back in the U.S., but you didn't seem to care. I, I politely messaged her saying, would you like to see your son? Yes. Well, anyway, lots of controversy, mostly <laughs> involving my mother. But yeah. anyway, let's talk about Super. Let's talk about Super. Super again. Yeah. So in the last episode, we laid the groundwork for Super and why it's a great vehicle for saving for retirement. This episode will focus on actually choosing a Super fund and the mechanics of pre-retirement and retirement. Yeah, so so let's get into this, right? We talked about, we laid the foundation, now we need to pick a super fund, right? So we'll start with evaluating super funds and how you can go about that. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned in our previous episode that we don't rate super funds, although we do rate instruments that are contained within some super platforms. For example, we don't rate Australian super, but we do rate Magellan Global that you can invest in through a super platform. So we'll go through a rough framework based on how our analysts conduct their research and can help you understand the trade-offs between different super funds and what might be best suited for you. When our analysts analyze funds, their evaluation is based on pillars, people, process, parent, price, and performance. We believe that these pillars are important determinants of the success of the fund, and this success is whether the fund beats their relevant benchmark on a risk-adjusted basis. We won't go through the theory too much in terms of our analyst methodology because truthfully, a lot of the information is not available as readily for individual investors, or there's no easy way to assess it. So we'll focus on the pillars that you can look at, and as an individual investor, hopefully make a good judgment call. So the first pillar is people. So people refers to the overall quality of the investment team, and it's considered important because people are the key to the ability to deliver superior performance. So understanding whether an investment team is able to do this is looking at who is making the key decisions on the portfolio. And if there's more than one person, the team that is looking at the portfolio. Now, we completely understand that you probably don't have the same access to the investment team in the way that our analysts might. So this is one of the pillars that there's not really any good way to incorporate into your framework. 
The fund website might have some information on underlying funds and external managers or in-house investment professionals. We want to critically evaluate the funds, and that is hard to do with information that's housed on the Superfund's website because it's probably pulled together by a marketing team. We've had this discussion before, but there is an opacity to funds in Australia where funds are not mandated to disclose holdings, something that's pretty standard practice internationally. When we look at super funds, they take this even further. We're hard-pressed to find a fund that discloses to a standard that's appropriate for investors. In a perfect world, that disclosure is what is essential to how you evaluate an investment and make informed decisions. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting, right? We'll talk a little bit later about there has been a lot of super reform, mm-hmm. but I don't know why none of this has been touched. Like, you know, it's it's shocking to me, as you mentioned before, just the fact that Funds in Australia don't have to disclose their holdings, and they basically made up this ridiculous answer when the rest of the world does it. So a ridiculous justification for not doing it. And super funds, as you said, they're even worse. They don't report their performance in any sort of standardized way. They don't report it to some sort of common um, platform that's easily accessed by everybody. It's just, yeah. A bit of a mess. It's pretty shocking. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Um, So the next pillar is price. And this is definitely a pillar where individuals can make an educated assessment about value. Fees are a big one, and super funds have gotten a lot of flack recently, especially retail funds, for their exorbitant fees that they charge. Making sure that you're not paying too much, especially if you're early on, can make a significant difference to your retirement outcomes. So let's take a look at an example. Um, In our example, we'll look at someone who is early career, has 30 years left until retirement, has a $100,000 super balance, and contributes $500 monthly. They earn 6% per annum on investment returns over this time, and they're paying 1.5% total in fees per annum. They'll have $735,000 balance after those 30 years, which does sound great, until you realize that without that 1.5% in fees, the balance would have been $1,061,000. That's a significant difference in outcomes and really illustrates that fees are something you should pay attention to, especially in a vehicle where your time horizons are decades long. Now, realistically, there is just no world where you will pay no fees, but an overarching concept, regardless of how close or far you are to retirement, is that you do have to be careful with fees. The impact is multiplied with time, but if the timeline was 10 years instead of 30, the fee impact is still $31,000. Okay, so let's go through some of the fees that are associated with super funds. And, you know, just as a little trigger warning, there's a lot of them. (laughs) Um, And, you know, this is important to every investor in super funds. So CanStar has done a study that shows that most people are paying between 0.88% and 1.24% of their account balance in fees per year. So this includes administration fees, investment fees, and performance fees. And for super, this seems like a pretty high fee, but it is important to remember that the average super balance in Australia is quite low. So between 20 and 25,000 for those aged 25 to 29, and then at the other end, at pre-retirement, $157,000 for women and $214,000 for men. And the reason why a lot of these fees are higher than we think is for two reasons. So first, there's administration costs. And these impact investors with lower balances because they're a flat fee instead of a percentage. So naturally, this dollar amount makes up more as a percentage of the fee when the balance is lower. And then as your balance grows, it becomes less of a percentage. The second reason, which is something that all investors should pay attention to because it can dramatically increase the fees that you pay, are the indirect costs. And indirect costs are the underlying costs that are incurred for managing your investment, and they're often tricky because they're deducted from the investments. So what I mean by that is that you won't see a dollar amount deducted on your statement as a cost, 
Indirect costs are taken behind the scenes and therefore many investors don't notice them. There are other fees that can be associated with your super fund, including additional investment or entry costs. So every time that you make an investment, they might charge you a fee. This is an outdated fee that used to go to advisors, third parties or investment managers themselves. During your working life, if you incurred this fee on a weekly super payment, you'd be paying it over a thousand times. Ensure that you have no entry fees on your investment. An easy way to understand exactly what fees you're paying is a fee breakdown. So you can find a free ba- break fee, <laughs> fee breakdown, <laughs> not a free breakdown. I'm potentially going to have a breakdown later. Um, but you can find this fee breakdown in the PDS or the product disclosure statement. This is a document that basically sets out the rules for the fund what it invests in, what it can invest in, the fees it can and can't charge. It acts like a contract between you and the super fund. And in the PDS, not only are these fees set out, but they're required to provide an example balance and the impact that fees have on the example balance. It's sort of what Shani did earlier, mm. which makes each of the fee components a little bit easier to understand. And one more thing. Advisor service fees. So advisor service fees are third-party fees that are added to your account with your permission, but they are left on there as long as they do not receive other instructions. So in other words, unless you go back and say, Mm -hmm. stop charging me. Yeah. And, you know, we do think that professional financial advice is important for many Australians, but ensure you're not paying for a service that you're not receiving. And we're skirting around the obvious question that many have asked, how much should I be paying? And it's important to acknowledge that there's no free lunch here. Running a super fund involves many administrative and operating costs. And like all goods and services, it's completely dependent on the good or service you're receiving. You'd expect to pay more for a fund that has a high active allocation to international equities than you would to a fund that is sitting 50% in cash. And that naturally takes us to the next pillar, which is process. When our analysts assess process, they are style agnostic, meaning they don't rate value over growth or for fixed income, high quality over credit sensitive, etc. What they do look for are strategies with performance objectives and investment process, for security selection and portfolio construction that is sensible, clearly defined, and repeatable. And for us, when we're looking at super, that means looking at the investment and the asset allocations within super. Roger Ibbotson, a professor of finance, author and founder of Ibbotson Associates, which actually is a Morningstar company now, he summed up asset allocation decisions pretty well. He said that on average, 90% of the variability of returns and 100% of the absolute level of return is explained by asset allocation. So what Roger meant by this is that the mix of assets that you have in your portfolio is a key factor in your return. So clearly, this is a pretty important step. So let's start with what an asset class is. An asset class is a group of securities that have common characteristics that are distinct from other asset classes. They're traditionally divided into income defensive assets and growth assets. Generally speaking, growth assets like equities, property and infrastructure are assumed to achieve higher returns. In the same breath, defensive assets like cash and bonds are seem to have a lower average return than growth assets, but they're less volatile and the returns tend to be a bit more sustainable. Yeah, so with super, it's a little bit of a tight rope, tight rope for a super fund. <laughs> You're ruining the facade of it, mate. But, you know, like we, we do a couple of episodes at a time when we're in the office and the second episode is always a bit of a struggle <laughs> for us. But Yeah, um, mainly, mainly me. The last episode we did, you screwed up literally in the first sentence you I said. Did. Mm. So anyway, <laughs> what super funds are trying to deal with is scalability while also appealing to the risk and return objectives of so many different people with different requirements and different life stages, different incomes. 
different objectives. So I do think that super funds are getting better at making their options more customizable, and they're doing this compete with self-managed super funds, which money is frankly bleeding into from regular super funds because their popularity is rising so much. So when we look at asset allocation for the superannuation industry in general, we've seen a movement away from Aussie equity heavy funds, and this has really occurred in the last decade. And that's saying a lot because when we look at active decisions, so if we look at investments outside of super, Aussies have one of the largest home biases in the world, meaning we prefer to invest in Australian equities at a disproportionate amount to their contribution to the global market. And that's no surprise. I mean, we've had a pretty good run. The tax is less complicated. It's cheaper to access. And of course, there are franking credits. (laughs) But we're moving away from this in super and towards international markets, and investors have been rewarded for this because international markets have done well, better than Aussie equities in that time frame, even after adjusting for currency. Then we have bonds, and bonds sit at 12.8% on average for super portfolios, the third largest allocation. We see cash sitting at about 10%, listed and unlisted real estate now accounts for 8.6% of total portfolio assets. And we've also seen a number of industry funds embrace what's called the endowment model for asset allocation. So the endowment model is championed by David Swenson. He was a longtime manager of the Yale Endowment. And this approach has been taken up since then by many endowments and pension funds that are managing long-term portfolios. And we could probably do a whole episode Mm -hmm. on this, Shani, which maybe we'll do at some point. But it basically means putting more of your portfolio into asset classes that have higher expected returns. In other words, avoiding fixed interest and putting very large allocations into alternative assets, such as private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds. And this model, as I said before, has been replicated by some large industry super funds. So, for example, if we look at the high growth option of Aussie Super, They can allocate up to 15% to private equity, 30% to direct property. So that's like just buying a building um, and 30% to infrastructure. And Mark, I think this is something that you find attractive. I I do. I do, Shani. So I, I just think that these asset classes are really difficult for me to get exposure to as an individual investor. So that's why I think it could be an attractive option for investors. And, you know, this is why I use Aussie Super. Um, I do want to caveat this by saying most of my assets are outside of super. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I am did not start my career in Australia and spent a lot of time working outside of Australia. They so don't do what we do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Think well, about the choices you want to make. With everything, yeah. with everything, we just want to caveat anytime. We want to be honest again about what we're doing. But yeah, don't do necessarily what we do and think about the choices within yeah your own personal circumstances. Mm-hmm. So those are the typical asset classes that you'll see in pre-mixed asset allocation for super. And what you need to figure out is how much exposure you need to each of these asset classes at each stage of your life. And this, of course, stays true when you're investing in a self-managed super fund as well. And so one of the questions we got when this episode was requested was, how on earth do I choose the asset allocation from the models that are being provided? For example, Aggressive in Aussie Super, does that mean the same thing as aggressive with AMP Super? And the answer is no. When you're looking at super funds and where to invest your money, the asset allocations are not mandated across the industry, so you can find large variances, up to 20% in different asset classes, which means that you'll be comparing apples with oranges in terms of performance and in terms of fees. Take, for example, Australian Super Balanced. It can hold a range of Aussie shares between 10 and 45%. It currently holds 21%. 
A balanced fund with Rath Super can hold between 30 and 40%. Australian shares, it currently holds 35%. Then you look at Q Super's balanced option. They've got 7.1% in Aussie equities. There's discrepancies across the board for all asset classes in each option. It is really important to understand the underlying holdings because over a time period of 30 to 40 years, a misallocation at an early stage could cost you hundreds and thousands of dollars. Okay. So how do you do this? Well, the first thing you do is you should go listen to our portfolio construction episode. (laughs) So, I mean, that's a bit of a plug. That's also our most popular episode still to this day. Um, But really what we talk about in this episode is about understanding your goals and what what return is needed to achieve your goals. And the asset allocation plays a huge part in this. Obviously, you need to be more aggressive if you need higher returns to achieve your goals. So go back and listen to that episode. And then what you do once you figure this out, once you've set your goal, is then you go out and start looking for funds. And the best way to do this is once again to look at the PDS. The website might have current allocations to asset classes, but it's important to consider the mandate, meaning they might have a 10% allocation to cash now, but they might have a mandate that allows them to allocate 100% to cash. And you want to have tighter mandates towards your asset allocation targets because that gives you the best chance of achieving your required rate of return. But what we did see, which could bring some uniformity to the sector, is there is new legislation that punishes underperforming super funds. So in 2020, the Morrison government brought in the new legislation that requires super funds to meet an annual objective performance test. The purpose of this was to root out all the underperforming super funds. Those that underperformed were not able to accept new members and had to inform current members of their underperformance. But the question is, Shani, is this actually a good thing? Yeah. So one thing to remember with superannuation is that especially for the aggressive funds, the fund managers are basing their allocations on long-term horizons. What this legislation does is punish super funds for underperforming over the short term and discourages this long-term outlook. What it will do is encourage closet indexing, meaning that many of the super funds will not have any incentive to diverge too far from the mean, and many of these funds will have professional managers behaving a lot like the index and avoid assets like private equity, job-creating infrastructure projects, early-stage technology companies, venture capital, and illiquid assets that perform differently. So what should investors do about this? You seem like you're a fan of the legislation, Johnny. <laughs> It's yeah, all, it's, it sound yeah, it's like trying to accomplish something good, but I think it's pretty obvious that there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences that 100%. are bad. Yeah. Um, that and the keyword there the is surfle, surface level of it. Yeah, yeah but the keyword is obvious there yeah. that people should have figured this out. But anyway, there's nothing, of course, that mandates that investors must remove themselves from investments if they underperform. There's nothing that says that a one or even three-year return is the final determinant of your retirement outcome. And we've spoken about this a few times on the podcast, but we've seen that switching funds like this can be to the investor's detriment. And we call the impact the behavior gap. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. 
Sign up for a free trial today. We do a study called Mind the Gap, but we've used a study that Vanguard has done before, and we'll talk about that quickly because it really illustrates the impact of switching funds based on performance. Vanguard took a look at US stock fund returns between 2004 and 2013 and ran two different scenarios. In the first scenario, Vanguard looked at performance chasing. They followed a hypothetical scenario where an investor sold any fund that trailed the category's three-year average total return over a three-year period and purchased a fund that had higher than average returns than the category over the same three-year period. Basically, selling funds that underperformed and buying funds that outperformed. The outcome of this study involved more than 40 million return paths. They compared that to people that just bought a fund and held it for nine years, regardless of the performance. And you'll all be shocked to know that (laughs) investors that bought and held onto their funds performed dramatically better. So Vanguard looked at six different categories across the value to growth spectrum for large and small, large, small and mid cap companies. So that means funds that invest in the biggest companies and then mid-sized and small companies. In every instance across those six categories, the buy and hold investors perform better. The outperformance ranged from 1.6% to 4% per year, which is a pretty big deal, especially with super, right, over long time periods. And this is just one of many studies that show this impact. And it's important to remember because it can be tempting to switch and chase returns when you see them on those lists with the really attractive returns on the top. And that brings us to our next pillar, performance. We have heard the phrase, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance ad nauseum, and it's the truth. Every year when the list of top performing super funds are released, the top performers see huge inflows and investors withdraw their funds from purely based on this one metric. I had a look at the top 10 performing super funds month by month over the last year, and it changed almost every single time. And this is why performance in the traditional sense doesn't have a weighting in our analyst methodology, meaning they don't rank funds based on their past performance. What is important, though, is relative performance compared to the fund's benchmark. So super funds will have an investment objective that they're looking to reach, and this is where you can see how they've stacked up against that. So let's use an example here. So Aussie Super is the biggest super fund in Australia, and not just because my super is in it. <laughs> it's I, just 90% Mark LaMonica's super. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think those rankings would change <laughs> if I decided to move somewhere else. But if any super funds want to come court me, I am, I am of course, available. <laughs> So as you said, Aussie Super, the biggest super fund in Australia, we're going to look at their high growth option. And the objective for the high growth option is to beat CPI by more than 4.5% over the medium to long term and to beat the median growth fund over the medium to long term. (laughs) I'm saying medium to long term a lot. So their goal is to beat inflation and then add 4.5% on top of that. Over what time period, Johnny? The medium to long term. Exactly. And it recommends a minimum investment time frame of 12 years, which might equate to their definition of the, <laughs> the medium, medium to long term. Yeah. Okay. So when we look at performance, it has achieved that. It's achieved an 11.7% per annum return over a five-year period, 10.64% per annum over a 10-year period. And based on relative performance to its benchmark, Aussie Super has achieved its objective. So let's look at our last pillar, which is a little difficult and a bit more conceptual, and that's parent. When our analysts are looking at this pillar, they're looking at it because the asset management firm or fund would not be sustainable without its backing. It's also set the tone for key elements of this evaluation, including risk management, capacity management, and whether they have a culture of stewardship. The last point is probably the most important for the superannuation industry. 
We've been shown through the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services Industry how important it is that firms have an investor-first mindset. We saw dead clients being charged. We saw the misuse and misappropriation of trail commissions, which were only recently abolished in superannuation. We saw commission structures that had a complete disregard for investor outcomes. Although the recommendations from the commission has led to the to industry reform and greater protections for investors, we always encourage investors to understand what and who they're investing with. And for superannuation, there is a chasm that separates the types of parent companies that you can choose. So there's industry super funds, which are not for profit and have a pretty strong grip over the industry. And then there's retail super funds that are for profit. So for the case of industry super funds, they are run only to profit members and they never paid commissions or incentives to their staff or any financial planners. Retail super funds generate profits that are returned to shareholders instead of to members. When we look at having an investor first mindset, industry super funds do have an edge in that regard. However, that does not mean that retail funds are evil and are there to take advantage of investors. Investors may turn to retail funds because of the options that they have, past these generic investment options that are usually offered by industry funds to remain scalable and keep costs down. So retail super funds offer specialized funds that may suit specific strategies or allow control to investors that may, for reasons such as cost and low balance, not make much sense to open at a self-managed super fund. Retail funds offer investors choice and the ability to build their retirement portfolio without compromise to generic investment options. And so in that regard, retail funds have an edge. Approach any super fund that you invest in with a dose of healthy skepticism. Question the fees, question the insurances, question the investment options and choices. So you've evaluated your choices based on the framework. You've looked into process, performance, price, parent. You've chosen a fund. Now what? You've kept working. You might have gone up a few rungs in pay. What happens in the decades to a retirement? Do you keep your super in the same allocation? And how often do you review your circumstances? Yeah, you know, you take the same approach that you take for any goal that you're saving and investing for outside a super. And, you know, once again, a suggestion is we went through this process during our portfolio review episode. And it's really, really important for long time horizons like retirement goals. So it is really important to remember that as you approach retirement, you do need to reduce the risk you're taking on your portfolio because of sequencing risk. So sequencing risk is the risk that the order and timing of your investment returns are unfavorable, resulting in less money for your goals. So sequencing risk is especially dangerous for retirement goals. Towards the end of the accumulation phase and in early retirement, your savings pool is generally at its largest and is more exposed to market movements given the volume of capital at risk. And Challenger has a great example of sequencing risk based on a retirement scenario between 1992 and 2019. The investor retired in 1992 with $350,000 split evenly between Aussie shares and bonds. Following his retirement, he drew down $22,000 indexed to inflation each year. In 27 years, he would still have over $200,000 left based on the market returns that he achieved. Now take that same investor, but switch the order of returns between 2019 and 1992 in reverse chrono- chronological order. The investor would run out of money in 24 years, completely down to zero dollars. The sequence of returns during this period had a significant impact on the sustainability of his retirement income. When you're getting close to retirement, a fall in market value of investments would leave the investor much less time to recover and increase the probability of a shortfall of funds in the late stage of retirement. So there's a couple different ways you can combat sequencing risk within your super. 
So diversification. So obviously, don't put all your eggs in one basket and ensure that your portfolio is structured with the right level of risk for pre-retirement. Asset classes will perform differently over time, and by diversifying, you can smooth out your investment returns. For example, some fixed income investments may perform well when equity markets are falling, limiting the impact on your overall portfolio. You could use the bucket strategy. So this entails keeping a few years of drawings in cash investments so that if markets fall dramatically, you have cash reserves to call on for a few years while the equity component of your portfolio hopefully recovers. Ensuring that you have a few years of cash investment, a few years of your investments in cash means you are not in a situation where you are selling on a reduced base. Another option is to consider products that have an inbuilt level of risk management, like real return funds, when their main goal is capital preservation. And I guess one other option is obviously annuities, mm-hmm. which, of course, Challenger is famous for, yeah. which is... Why they've probably put this scenario together. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So another consideration when you're reaching retirement is transition to retirement. Transition to retirement allows you to access superannuation funds while you're still working, allowing you to reduce your hours at work, but still keep the same standard of living. Transition to retirement is available after you hit your preservation age, which depends on when you were born. For the 1962 financial year, it's 57. 63 financial year, it's 58. 64 financial year, it's 59. And for the 65 financial year onwards, it's the age of 60. The transition to retirement, or TTR, lasts until you've met a condition of release, which is usually retirement or the age of 65. The, le- the language around super funds is just... There's just so many rules. Befuddling. <laughs> yeah. Well, just all these, all these, all these different... Yeah, it's just, it's just all the language. It's, mm. it's very difficult for foreigners to show up here and understand this stuff. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about this transition to retirement or TTR. So mm-hmm. how it works is that you roll your super savings into a retirement income stream. You then draw part of your income from the transition to retirement income stream and then part of your income from your employer replacing the income that you would have generated, of course, working full-time. However, what some people do in this period between your preservation age and 65 is to continue to work full-time, but still use this TTR for tax benefits. Because salary sacrifice contributions are taxed at 15%, instead of your marginal tax rate, you get a tax concession. Effectively, you're sacrificing your salary into super, paying 15% on the way in, and then pulling it out as an income stream where you don't pay tax. And there are a few footnotes. There are limits on how much you can replace by pulling out of super. And the minimum has been reduced into 2022 to 2% of the amount in your income stream account because of the uncertainty surrounding COVID. Generally, it's between 4 and 10% outside of these extenuating circumstances. The other footnote is if you are under 60 when you start your TTR, you are subject to different tax structures depending upon how your funds are split in your super account. So let's take a look at this as an example. All right. So say that I'm earning $80,000 a year. I decide to employ a TTR and it's for $15,000 for the year. That's an income stream that's coming to me from my super. I salary sacrifice $15,000 of my $80,000 salary. That brings me back to square to $80,000. Then I pay tax. In the first scenario without a TTR, my gross tax payable is $19,147. In the second scenario with a TTR, my gross tax payable is the same, but I receive a 15% tax offset, bringing my tax payable down to $16,897. That's a $2,250 difference to my net tax payable. What would you do with that money? (laughs) Um, Bottles of 
champagne and call your mum. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. Um, so, this might be a little hard to grasp over a podcast. So, we'll pop a link in our additional resources to a great explainer by Aeon that illustrates the scenario with the same figures. Okay. So, you've retired after your preservation age or you've reached 65. Now what? Okay. So, now you'll be able to access your super at 65 without as many footnotes. So, when you get to retirement, you have two accounts, your accumulation account and your pension account. Your accumulation is the account that attracts a 15% tax and is the one that you would have used during your working life. Your pension account is the account that you draw down on income from, and that income stream is taxed at 0%, and your investment earnings are taxed at 0%. So this is a great deal, but there is a limit, so you can only hold a maximum of $1.7 million in this account. There are a few common questions that we get about retirement and super. So the first is how you actually structure it, and it's going to look very different to how you structured your portfolio during your accumulation phase. We've spoken about the bucket strategy a few times on the podcast, and Mark has done whole webinars about it. Its purpose when it was created was to help retirees create paychecks from their investment assets. The bucket strategy works well in retirement because it allows your assets to continue growing, but gives you enough of a buffer to draw down an income. You want to make sure that as you're drawing down an income, you're pulling down from assets that are liquid, ideally cash. Most super funds offer the option to choose which assets to withdraw from. And of course, you get the choice with an SMSF to structure it in that way. It would be worth utilizing to ensure that you're not pulling down from volatile investments, because if you withdraw from investments that are at temporarily depressed levels, you forego the opportunity to let it recover. This is the first bucket. It's worth keeping three to five years of cash in this bucket in case of a market downturn. It's not meant to be a bucket that garners returns, especially when yields are so low. It's purely there to let you safely access your retirement assets as income from a stable base. Then there's the second bucket. So this portfolio segment contains five or more years worth of living expenses with a goal of income production and stability. And a lot of these assets sit in fixed income or high quality dividend paying shares. So this bucket refills bucket one as the assets are depleted. The last bucket, bucket three, for those keeping track at home, that's the long-term bucket. So bucket three is mainly equities or corporate and high-yielding bonds. This, of course, means that this bucket has greater loss potential than bucket one or two, and there's more of a buffet. That'll, uh, more of a buffet. <laughs> buffet on your mind, mate? Exactly. You well, there's, a drink? There's this beer yeah. sitting in front of me, and as soon as I get through this, I can, uh, I can have it. Take a swig. It. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, there's a greater loss potential, but you do have that buffer in bucket one and two that allows you to generate higher returns over the long term without selling those assets when you don't want to. And we'll put a link in our additional resources page to a webinar where Mark goes through the buckets in detail and what sort of assets you can fill them with. And it, Do you want to describe the bucket? Yeah, it's it's one of Shani's favorite webinars <laughs> because bucket one is represented with a KFC bucket. Yeah. And Shani's- I'm salivating just thinking about it. Very yeah. into KFC. <laughs> and then I believe we have a keg for bucket two mm-hmm. and then a whiskey barrel for bucket three. That's for Will. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is uh, a lot of creativity goes into these uh, into Webinar. these into these webinars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the second question that we get a lot is, "What do I do when I'm forced to withdraw more money from my super than I spend?" And this question is referring to the rules in retirement around pensions. When you're drawing an income stream in retirement, there is a minimum amount that must be withdrawn. So this minimum amount increases as your age increases. So it starts at four percent under sixty four. That increases to 5% for those between 65 and 75, and then ticks up 1% at 
every five years. Note that this is under normal circumstances. Those withdrawal rates have been halved until the end of the 2022 financial year and will be set to increase in the future, which I could go on a long rant about. Um, Interesting super policy during COVID. But anyway, what should you actually do about this? Well, there's a simple answer. Just because you take your money out doesn't mean you have to spend it. So you can take the money out. You can keep it in cash. You can reinvest it outside of super. So don't let the structure of super and the rules of super dictate how much you spend from your account. Okay, so those were two episodes with a lot of information about super. We think super is a great tool for saving for your retirement, and although it is for savings, it also encourages you to contribute and create a comfortable retirement for yourself. So a quick summary. Admin, make sure that you check how many super accounts you have, your level of insurance and beneficiaries are up to date. Find what your goal should be in retirement that's right for you. You'll see lots of averages and studies on what will give you a comfortable retirement, but only you can determine what's feasible for you and what a comfortable retirement is in your eyes. Contribute to super to save for your retirement, but remember in many scenarios, 10% may not be enough. Everyone's situation is different, but Australia's superannuation system is the envy of most of the world. The tax concessions are attractive at every stage of the journey and use it as a tool to get the most out of your retirement portfolio. All right, a couple other lessons. So when you're assessing a super fund, the name isn't always a great indicator of what is in the fund. So as we explored, not all balanced funds are the same. So make sure you're taking a dive into the holdings and align it with what you want to achieve in terms of asset allocation. Also, take a really good look at fees, how they've performed against the standards that they have set, the processes that they use to invest, and their track record of putting investors first. So when you're reaching retirement, or you you can start this transition to retirement phase of your life, and that allows you to start accessing your super. So you can use this to slow down to part-time work without sacrificing your standard of living or minimize the next net tax payable if it agrees with your circumstances. Understand how your asset allocation changes as you move towards retirement. You want to avoid falling prey to sequencing risk, but you also don't want to be victim of longevity risk. So there are many strategies out there to structure your retirement income, but we explored the bucket strategy. As we mentioned, you can find some resources about this in the additional resources section in our podcast notes. All right, so we did it. That's two episodes. I know. And by the time this is released, we would have been a week into freedom. I know. That's very so, exciting. What, what's your first, what's the first place you're going to go, Amy? Well, I'll probably go somewhere Monday afternoon, <laughs> to tell you the truth. So if you're trying to message Early me, or... <laughs> yeah, if you're trying to message me at work, I might uh, be in a meeting. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I've got, I've got bookings on Friday night and I've got bookings on Saturday. Nice. So, so you're going to have a few drinks and we've obviously found out in this episode that Karen, your mother is my drunk dial. Who's yours? Yeah, it's generally Domino's or <laughs> Guzman. But uh, I could not imagine you eating Domino's. No, no. Well, I, I think my pizza snobbery goes away as I uh, have a couple right, of drinks. Right. Okay. So, all right. Well, we've made it. Thank you guys for going through our two-part super series. As we said, we will uh, we will try to minimize the multiple multiple episode mm-hmm. um, concepts that we go through. But as you probably learned today, this one is complex. There's a lot of different moving parts. But anyway, thank you for joining. We'd love a rating, a comment, or a share to somebody who wants to know a little bit more about Super. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law 
prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.